Welcome, fans. This is NEC Now. I'm Ron Ratner, Senior Associate Commissioner with the conference. And we're on the NEC Overtime Pod um, here today. I'm joined by Coach Eric Taylor, not the uh, 2006 Texas State football coach, champion coach from Friday Night Lights. Even better, we have the NEC legend himself from St. Francis University entering his ninth season as an assistant coach, a former player. Welcome, Eric Taylor. How are we doing? Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Uh, appreciate you having me on. Feel blessed for the opportunity to give shed light on whatever you may ask of me. But of course, uh, I'm full of information, uh, full of information about the NEC. Uh, I mean, some information about the pandemics that are going on. And uh, we'll definitely give a positive outlook on all three issues uh, uh, as, we, as we start this interview. All right, so tell me, you mentioned the pandemic. How is life with Red Flash men's basketball at this point? How have you been interacting with the student athletes? Yeah, I just think like uh, we've been doing a lot of Zoom calls. Uh, Coach Krimmel has uh, spearheaded that um, along with Coach Shannon, Coach Helton, Coach uh, McConnell, Coach uh, Beeline, who's with us also. Um, not Beeline, sorry, uh, uh, Andy, um, Andy Nyland. Sorry, he's the cousin of Coach Beeline. Uh, pardon me. But anyways, um, yeah, we've just done a lot of Zoom calls, being able to interact with our student athletes, making sure that we're on the same page uh, as far as academics are concerned and as far as mentally, uh, psychologically, uh, just because of some, uh, because of the unprecedented times that of course we are under, um, we wanted to make sure we kept things as consistent as far as a communication um, collaboration uh, that we've done uh, with the coaches and with our student athletes, and they've been really, really good. Uh, we've talked, we've talked basketball, we've talked social issues, we've talked uh, health issues. We've, we've kind of dabbled a lot into uh, each thing as we start, as we tackle and find solutions to a better, a better future. I mean, we're in uncharted water here, and right. a lot of the time, what I've been hearing as from coaches is that their student athletes are way more resilient than they thought they would be as this pandemic started and you know dealing with online learning dealing with the constant zooms mm -hmm. how have you found it with with your guys yeah i think they've been really really good about it um i mean we've had a plethora of guys i mean sometimes when we get on this zoom call I can't mention names, but like one guy is driving, two guys are driving in a car, one guy's in a weight room, a couple guys are in their bedroom, a couple guys are on the deck out in their backyard. Uh, we haven't had any guys in the, in the swimming pool yet with a Zoom call, so we're actually trying to wait for maybe a, a swimming pool Zoom call. But other than that, uh, they've been, like you said, very resilient. Um, this generation of you know, COVID and, uh, you know, social upheaval, uh, we're looking at a culture that's going to be revolutionized um, five to 10 years from now, because it will be this generation that will say, this is what we did. And uh, like you said, this resiliency uh, from this generation has been very positive uh, on the outlook as us older guys, you know, once we get older, we'll have a generation that has been through one of the toughest times in uh, American slash global history. 
What are some of the things you've seen? I, I've seen some really good things from your team as it relates to, um, you know, racial injustice mm. and trying to make the world a better place. What are some of the initiatives coming out of your program? Yeah, um, actually, it's funny that you say that um, um, Ty Stewart has started a voting initiative. So Tyler Stewart uh, has been really active uh, with the whole with the entire uh, social situation. And he's been active to get people to register to vote. So uh, the initiative with our team is we're going to be the uh, shining example for the athletic department and say, like, look, if you are re- if you are of registered age, you should be registered to vote so that you can get active in your political realm, uh, figure out which policies you like, figure out which policies you don't like, and you can vote for your local slash state representative so that you can push for or be an agent of change uh, with um, politically, uh, first of all. Now, socially, uh, we've had talks about an initiative that kind of actually I started um, and it's called the Beacon of Light Initiative. And so it's basically police enhancement. I won't get too far into it, but uh, one of the initiatives is making other friends that are not like you. Uh, and this is kind of like the non-biased multicultural diversity training initiative that um, we are trying to set. Um, and I know a lot of schools are doing it already because there's uh, committees and initiatives form with the NABC and the NCAA and through corporations. But uh, but something simple that we're doing, we're basically like, look, make other friends. Like, go make, if you're white, make a black friend and make another friend other than white or black. If you're black, make another white friend or make another friend that's not white or black. Uh, we're trying to just get to the root of let's learn and, and understand each other. Uh, even though all teams, uh, whichever sport you're playing, you're already being diversity trained. So like everybody is diversity trained as far as sports, because normally you have a multicultural uh, team, um, whether it's you might have one African-American on an all white team or all Caucasian team, I'll say Eurocentric, Afrocentric, African-American, Caucasian, black, white. I I usually, I I bounce around there just to be, um, not to be offensive, but to be, uh, relatively quick but uh, that's what we've done we've uh making making other friends and then basically making an initiative about love uh just because everything has been a little bit about um this side that side us them no we're, let's just be together let's love thy neighbor um which is you know the one of the greatest books greatest quotes of the greatest books and it's in and it's in one of the greatest three books you know the the bible the quran and the uh and the torah and so i uh, don't want to leave anything out there but uh, but yeah love our team is spreading love that's one of the initiatives that we said that we would do uh and we would be active with uh with politically as far as like voting and things like that so tyler Stewart spearheaded that and then with the initiative about love loving your neighbor no matter who they are that's been uh one thing that's kind of taken off with our team, Luke Ruggery, who will be a freshman this year, uh, he said, I have, he said, Coach T, Coach Criminal, I have a half a million uh, TikTok followers. If you want us to spread this love, I got a half a million followers right now, we can do it. And so, uh, so he's been ready and all of our guys have been really excited about it. 
it's such a great message you're sending. I know Tyler has participated. We're about to unveil our Champions for Change platform for the entire Northeast Conference, and Tyler's mm -hmm. taken part in that. So uh, we're proud of him and all of our student athletes, and it's such an important um, time that we're facing right now. So great stuff, Erica. It's, 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 we've noticed here in the conference, and I think other schools have as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's great. I think uh, the Northeast Conference can be a beacon and a, a shining example to other conferences um, uh, of like the small school atmosphere, you know, um, and being able to be agents of change uh, for people around you and for other conferences. Um, I think we can all, no matter how big or small your conference is, you can make an impact uh, for the better. Agreed. All right, let's, let's go off in another direction now. Let's awesome. turn to you now. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about your life. Uh, you went to high school in Cincinnati. Yeah. Um, what led you to SFU as a student athlete? Uh, it was the love actually. <laughs> I mean, but it's kind of like a, uh, a segue from love into love. Uh, I was getting recruited by the Citadel um, West Point. Uh, I think Dino, Dino Gaudio was at West Point um, with Michael Davenport, uh, Skip Prosser and Jeff Battle. They were at Loyola, Maryland at the time. And it was right before Skip went to Xavier, uh, the late Skip Prosser, a great guy. Jeff Battle, who I'm really good friends with. We actually trained at Providence College's facility before we uh, battled Bryant of our first conference game of the year. Um, and uh, Wright State was in there and a couple D2s, but uh, Coach McConnell and Jimmy Christian, who's the head coach at uh, Boston College, he was the lead recruiter. Jimmy Christian was a lead recruiter with Tom because Tom McConnell had a lot of um, uh, tentacles in Ohio because he had coached with Jim O'Brien uh, at Dayton back in the late 80s. So he still had tentacles in Ohio. And so uh, after coming on a charter plane from Cincinnati to Johnstown, seeing snow in the mountains of the Alleghenies, I said, yeah, this is the place I want to be. This is just like Cincinnati. Uh, there's snow on the mountains. Because <laughs> Cincinnati has hills. We don't have the mountains, of course, the Alleghenies. But, uh, but when I arrived on campus, um, and it's a little bit like it is now, it was just the family atmosphere, the communal atmosphere. Um, they didn't have chemical engineering, uh, and that's what I actually wanted to major in. But they had accounting, which was kind of like my alternative secondary degree. Uh, the bachelor's degree, which I got, was accounting, but uh, but yeah, I just loved it. You know, London Fletcher was actually like my big brother. Um, as I came on campus, London Fletcher uh, took me in as a big brother. I was like, he got the host money. London Fletcher got the host money, and he got to entertain, you know, me that night uh, that I stayed uh, in Loretto uh, with another student athlete, uh, you know, a current student athlete of London Fletcher. And so, uh, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of, of course, the big story behind London, of course, everyone knows that, that history, but um, uh, that's what led me to Loretto. I thought it was the right fit. And uh, that's so much of what we talk about when we recruit now, got to go with the right fit. It was the right fit for me at that time, coming from where I came from. Uh, you know, a lot of people talked about prep school and uh, maybe you should go here or there. I said, no. I felt the love at St. Francis. They loved me. They had what I needed. There was a reciprocation of the love, and uh, and that's what led me to St. Francis. 
So tell me a little bit about Tom McConnell. I, I was only here for one year with Tom in 98-99, so I hear so many great things about him. I didn't really get a chance to know him well. What made him so special as a head coach to you? What made Tom so special was the fact that he bought into faith, he bought into the community, he bought into brotherhood. Uh, he was a zero tolerant uh, type of coach uh, for egos. Um, that was something that he did not tolerate on his team. And that was the one thing now that I respect more than ever now uh, from Tom, uh, just because he, he uh, his faith, uh, his Catholic faith and uh, his, his persistence and consistent message of brotherhood. And that's the one thing that led me and Rob to continue the relationship that we had over uh, the, since the year I graduated from, from St. Francis, that brotherhood that Tom McConnell preached and that communal atmosphere and that culture uh, for the years that we were here together, Rob and I, this is what led us to begin uh, what we have here at St. Francis. And so Tom McConnell is a big reason for that. Uh, uh, he doesn't know that, but, but, you know, I'll say it, he is one of the big reasons. And so a lot of the McConnellisms comes out in coaching when we're on the court and, uh, and a lot of McConnellisms comes out when, uh, when we try to, and when Rob spearheading everything, uh, when we try to, uh, form and mold the team that we have now. Let's talk about your era. Uh, that five-year stretch or so, I would say from 90, you know, 93, 94 to 98, I think it's probably the greatest um, collection of talent the conference has had over a five-year period. You know, you had, let's go through some of the players and teams. You had the LIU run-and-gun teams with Charles Jones and Mike Campbell and Richie Parker. Wow. You had Mount, had Chris McGunthry, Riley Inge. You had Mammoth with Corey Albano, John Geraldo. Right. FDU, right. Elijah Allen and Rashawn Turner. Right. Ryder, Dion Hames and Charles Smith. Oh. Marist, Alan Tomedy, Danny Basile. Like, these guys were, like, all, some all-time greats we just named. Oh, yeah. In this, in this conference. So, when I mention these teams and these players, does it bring you back to those daily battles you would have in that time? Absolutely. I tell you what. I'll call, I have Charles Smith on speed dial right now. And, <laughs> and sometimes I'll just call Charles and say, Charles, what's up, man? We need a player like you. Can you help us to get a player like you to St. Francis? I know you're from New York and I know you're coaching with the New York Lightning, but you know what? Give us a player like you to come to St. Francis. And so uh, every time Charles and I would talk, we just start we just start talking trash on each other. Like, yo, look, like, I'll go at you today. Like, I'll go at you, you know? And so the players that you mentioned that was in that era were uh, an absolute competitive collection of players. And you're talking about from every school had a duo like Blackman and Braxton you had a duo like that on every single team. And starting with FDU, with uh, Elijah Allen and R Rashawn Turner, 
Rashawn Turner was 6'5", soaking wet. Um, 6'6", maybe. And Elijah Allen, 6 feet, 5'10", but could give you everything. I mean, Elijah could give you 40 on one night. Rashawn could give you 20 points and 15 boards on another night at 6'5". Um, LIU, uh, Charles Jones, Richie Parker, um, I'm forgetting one. Who was it? It was a three-headed Mike Campbell. Richie Campbell. Mike Campbell. I mean, Mike, Mike Campbell. Campbell. Mike Campbell. Yeah. Yep. Mike Campbell, who I played against overseas. Unbelievable. Mike Campbell was like Scottie Pippen. Uh, Charles Jones was like a mix of like uh, Michael Jordan and like uh, a poor man's Michael Jordan and like, uh, oh, Steph Curry. Yes. He was a poor man's version of Steph Curry and Michael because he would shoot any shot um, and he could shoot uh, and then he could shoot deep like uh, Curry. Uh, one time he shot a shot from the coach's timeline uh, close to our bench. And then on his way back, he gave Coach McConnell a pat on the butt like nobody can guard me. Like it was during that <laughs> game in St. Fr- and Loretto that he did that when that game, when I think it went like maybe a couple overtimes, but they ended up beating us. I could be wrong. But um, even Marist, Marist was in our conference back in the day. They had Alan Tomedy, who was like, you know, who was like the poor man's Rick Smiths and Kareem Hill, two bigs uh, that they started at the same time at times. Mammoth, Corey Albano, uh, you know, being coached. I mean, great coaches during that area, era, unbelievable players. Like I, you can just hear the excitement and the passion in my, in the energy and in, in my voice, just because like at that time, the competition level was like unequivocal. Like it was, incredible every night you could not take nights off and it's just like the northeast conference now it, just a different generation but back in that generation during those 90s like you had mentioned you're talking about every single team mom has played a three two zone they ran uh two guard you know beeline offense uh fdu i mean they had players like we just mentioned their players um rider with charles smith and Dion hames uh, charles smith could shoot from anywhere uh, he was a baseline bandit. And then D.I. Haynes, you couldn't stop him. Uh, he ran the show at, at the point guard. And, uh, you know, I don't want to forget anyone else. I mean, even coming in, even before LIU, uh, uh, Charles Jones and Richie Campbell and, and Richie Parker, Mike Campbell, Richie Parker, there was Joe Griffin, who oh, was 6'4", yeah. 6'3", soaking wet. And he played the five. And, uh, and he was like an 1,000-point score, 1,000-point rebound. And Joe Griffin played against him my freshman year, and he was just like, I'm 6'7", six, 6'8", six, and this dude 6'3", six, 6'4", six, just put me in the post. Um, I'm like, yo, what's up, what's up with this? You know, like, <laughs> he's put me in the post at 6'3". So those were the kind of players. It was just like a hodgepodge of, like, hybrids, players that were maybe recruited higher but they came to the Northeast Conference because and for the development, for the academic development, for the, um, for the physical development, and for the skill development. And they ended up being really, really good players for their respective institutions um, in the record show it. In your freshman year uh, in the NEC tournament, you, you won the out bracket game. Then you played top seeded rider in the quarters, lost by one point. Do you have mm-hmm. any memory of that game? 
Uh, very vague. Um, I, I think it may have been at Ryder, if I'm not mistaken. I'm going to ask some questions here. Was it at Ryder? I, I believe they were on campus at that time. Yeah, They were on campus, and that's before they went to the generalized institution of, like, uh, Central Connecticut State, because I know that they right. did, they did uh, sites, um, or they did one main site or a mainstream site, maybe a year or, or two years after. But, uh, but yeah, I remember Dehan Hames. I remember Charles Smith making a baseline jumper. That's why I call him the baseline bandit. He could make 15 footers. They would run like a cross screen for him. He would come across uh, like kind of like what we did with Earl Brown. Um, just just put him on the baseline and let him shoot jumpers and one dribble pull ups and he could post up a little bit. Dion Hames was unstoppable. He was a point guard that that we couldn't keep up. We couldn't contain, you know, trying to defend him off the ball screen. Forget about it. Um, but yeah, it was a very competitive uh match you know back you know my freshman year and then that that's kind of what started uh the 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 passion and the drive like we have to get back here we we must do better next year um you know what how do we load up you know how do we get better players how do we you know what can we do uh we we actually recruited we recruited um to try to get a player a little bit like the player that beat us so charles smith you know beat us the year before um, so we were looking at maybe this six four six five swing man that could shoot it or either uh, slash um, that could compete, you know, with you know with the Charles Smiths or the quasi like Charles Smiths um, that you know, and that was like our Terrence Martin. Terrence Martin at that time was like our six five six four, but Terrence was going to graduate soon. Um, he, I think he was like maybe two years out. So we had to replace Terrence with uh, with with a shooter uh, because, I mean, that's when we brought Rob, brought Rob in as a shooter. And then we recruited a Sam Sutton also. Sam Sutton came for two years and then went down to Towson. He transferred down to Towson. But I keep in touch with actually Sam Sutton now because his kid is, is actually a really, really good player in Pennsylvania. So, but, uh, but yeah, that was, that was kind of like the start as far as like breaking into that quarterfinal playoff atmosphere and then just wanting more as a team. Um, and that's how we uh, we formed that kind of like playoff championship culture back in uh, back in 94, 95. In your final two years, you um, you played LIU at their place. You lost both times in overtime in Brooklyn to those teams. I, there should be some sort of documentary on those LIU teams from the day because uh -huh. they were so unique and it was just a crazy time there. Um, yeah. What was it like playing those teams? Oh. I mean, you knew you were going to get – because Ray, Coach Ray Haskins, God bless him. I don't know if he's still around, but if he's not, the late Ray – I mean, no, I won't even say that. Like, the, the great Ray – Ray Haskins was a coach. Uh, I don't know if he's still around. I think he still is. But um, uh, what a guy. I mean, uh, it was always – we knew we were in for a dogfight, no matter if LIU was coming to town or if we were going to the opera house – um, that a lot of people may may not know about, but we used to play in the that opera house uh, uh, on Long Island's campus, which is famed, world-renowned. Um, every time we go to LIU, even now for the last eight eight to nine years, uh, I always sneak over before shoot around to go into the Long Island Opera House just to look at all the gargoyles on <laughs> oh yeah i go in there and look everything in the ceiling there's a stage right by the basketball court uh 
when we played in there, uh, it was just a band box, just different. The only place you went into that had gargoyles looking at you while you shot a free throw. <laughs> so weird. An organ. They had the organ. It was yeah, the, the organ. Uh, they played the organ a couple times. Yeah. The organ was played a couple times in four games. I, I do remember that. And um, but what a uh, what a national basketball historical site uh, that the no, the Long Island Opera is. And um, so we there was always a dogfight with LIU. Always, you knew you're gonna have to outscore them because that that was their mo. They wanted to be, they didn't play any defense. That was just their mo. But they were gonna outscore you. So that was that was Ray Haskins' deal: recruit scores from all positions so you, we can outscore you. So we had to defend, we had to be disciplined. Uh, Coach McConnell talked about that. And uh, we had to limit and contain their scores. And we couldn't, we had to limit our turnovers and mistakes because they were great on fast break, those fast break turnovers, turning them into offense. And so uh, we had our work cut out for us on every single time we played LIU. You mentioned Terrence Martin before. I, I think he's a baller that kind of gets a little lost in our history. I love going back and, and researching players that maybe weren't, you know, first team all conference guys. Mm. But you look at his numbers, you look at the, you know, the, what you said before, the size he brought, some of the skills he brought. What was it like playing with him? Uh, just, he was, he was kind of a mentor. Um, Terrence was a mentor. Um, he was kind of like that last. Uh, mentorship from London Fletcher because him and London, they roomed together actually, him and Terrence. Terrence and London roomed together um, when I came on campus. And so I always looked up to Terrence as a big brother just because he was like that. They were two big brothers, London and, and Terrence when I came. So when after London left, Terrence became like that last sole big brother. And uh, Terrence's work ethic um, and his determination uh, to get bigger, because uh, he used to lift with the football players, uh, Terrence did. And so, I mean, like in a year or two, like his shoulders became from like, he became a bean, he come from a bean pole to like, you know, Hulk Hogan-like. Uh, and so his work ethic, his ability to be versatile, we played him at the four, because he could shoot the 15-footer. He, he, he was limited from the three-pointer but he could definitely shoot that 15 footer like the Charles Smiths of the, uh, of, of basketball. Um, he could shoot that 15 footer. He could slash, he could rebound. And, uh, and he was one guy that I thought that, you know, was just a mentor because he was that lone senior. Uh, my junior year, he was that lone senior that was just a very good uh, example of work ethic, determination and, uh, and state stayed at St. Francis for four years. All these guys, they stayed with their school for four years. Their transfers were not, that was, that was something that was foreign to basketball in, my, in the era between the 90s and, you know, 2000, my era, you know, since we're talking about, you know, this era, that era transfer was, was foreign. You, you know, most of your mothers and fathers were saying like, look, you go here, you stay there. You know, I understand maybe in an extreme case, you transfer, but other than that, you deal with the adversity. If you're not playing, work harder. That was it. Right. <laughs> you work harder and you try to play better. And that's not a guarantee that you're going to start just because you think you're getting 500 shots a day in the gym and, you know, you're in the gym every day. No, it's no guarantee. But that, like we talked about Terrence Martin, that hard work, 
mentorship, that determination. I think that was one of the, the things that kind of, um, that influenced uh, that Tom McConnell culture back in the 90s. Along with Terrence, I want to talk about your time with Rob Krimmel as a student athlete. Um, the two years you played with him, he wasn't, you know, major player on the team yet. His final two seasons when he was a junior and a, se a, junior and a senior, he became one of the NEC's top three-point shooters. But mm -hmm. in your years with him, let's talk about him as a player first. Um, did you... Were you just swatting his shots when he'd come into the lane up into the eighth roll, eighth row of the Gallerina? Did or you know how was Rob as a teammate? Um, you know how was his basketball mind? How was he as a player? Yeah, I'll I'll go with the bad first before I go with the good because there's so much so much good about Rob, but I'll have to talk about the bad because actually he brings up the bad to me sometimes, and the bad is. Um, there was one time in practice where Rob was on the help side and um, he was split in two. He had, a sh he had a shooter in the corner, but he was guarding the drive too. He was like playing too. And so I had a point guard drive. I think it might have been Jamal Ragland from St. Anthony's. He drove in. He dished it to me. Rob was late on help and unfortunately my vertical kind of took over like that last two or three <laughs> seconds and Rob was late on help side. And then there was a ball that was dunked through the net and like the whole team went nuts. And, you know, it was like, Oh, you got dunked on. And I really didn't see Rob, but he always tells me it was him. So I guess it was him. So that was the bad. <laughs> that was the bad, but uh, it, it, it wasn't on video. We don't have the VHS tapes to the VHS tapes to prove it, so it may have not been Rob, but he tells me to this day it was him. So that was the bad. Wish we but had as far the video. As teammate, <laughs> as far as a teammate, Rob was an unbelievable teammate. He was a guy who didn't matter who you were, where you were from. Uh, he treated you like a brother, um, and that was the one thing that made people comfortable. He was a tireless. He was a tireless worker academically and um, athletically. He was always in the gym getting shots with the heavy ball or the big ball. Uh, he was always one to get up early in the morning, get breakfast, just like he does now. He actually gets up now. Back in the day, he got up at like 6 a.m. Now he gets up at 4 a.m. And he like sends text out. I mean, that's kind of weird. I always tell him that. Like, wait, don't be sending text at 4.30 a.m. Uh, but, but now... But he's just, he was that type of guy, and it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me that he was the NABC's Community of Service Award coach um, this year just because his dedication um, to the community and his dedication to the student-athletes and his dedication uh, to his family and everything, all of the above, is, uh, is very unique. It's very unique. I tell him every year, I'm like, I wouldn't work with another coach um, because I just, I won't know who they are, but I know who Rob is and it makes me a little bit more comfortable or a lot comfortable working with Rob, uh, just because I know him as teammates and I'm blessed to have the opportunity to work with him just because it all shook out like that. It shook out that he called me while I was overseas and he said, Eric, let's, let's get this thing started. And, uh, and within seconds I said, I'm, I'm, I'm coming back. And, um, and Rob has been an unbelievable guy. Forget about coach, 
forget about teammate, forget about anything else. He's an unbelievable person. And I told Rob when this whole pandemic started, the social pandemic, I said, Rob, we need more guys like you uh, in this world. And I think it'll be a better place. Could you, in hindsight, could you see back then um, the bolt, like, like the wheels turning for him to become the coach he has become today? Are you, would you have been shocked back then if we told you in 1998 what Rob Krimmel would be doing in 2020? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I say that with no hesitation. Why? Because we did like an article, and I don't know if I have this article here. We did, you could choose your, um, uh, the, your, your best professor, and you had to go somewhere on campus and talk about your degree, talk about athletics, talk about uh, world events, uh, national events. And uh, I forgot which professor he chose. It might have been Dr. Whistler, who's a history professor uh, here. Um, but Rob said that one of the questions of the article was, what do you want to do when you graduate college for your career? And what Rob said back in 1997, if I'm not mistaken, he said, I would like to coach basketball. I want to coach and teach basketball. So that that's in the record books. So what he's doing right now, there's no question, undoubtedly, that I am not surprised that he's doing it because this is something that he wanted to do back when he was, you know, 17, 16, 17 years old. And he came from a great state college program under Coach uh, Coach Ferris. I always do. I, always, I might be bad with the names. He knows I'm bad with the names, but I think it was Coach Ferris because um, Coach Ferris always comes up and uh, gives us mentorship and uh, and learns from us. And uh, is actually, of course, he's proud of Rob and what he's accomplished here at St. Francis. But uh, not a doubt in my mind that Rob is doing exactly what he wanted to do and how much success that Rob has had um, as the uh, head coach here at St. Francis. Let's move on. Uh, once you graduate, you embark on a long professional career um, overseas, here as, here as well. Uh, 13 years as a pro, 11 countries. So you're kind of bouncing all around Europe. Um, you're out of your college cocoon, I would say, so to speak. Um, yeah. What's, couple questions. What's that life like, one? And two is, how mentally tough do you have to be to succeed at that level? I, I, I'm really bad at, and I will not pat myself on the back for anything, but to answer your questions, um, uh, the first question was, give me, give me the first question. Cause I believe what, what was, I, what's life like when you actually yeah. get there? Yes. Life is like this. I mean, you basically like during this time right now, this, this social and health pandemic, I'm totally at ease right now. Why? Because what life is like overseas is a life of uncertainty. Now for some, it could be a life of certainty where you're gonna get your money every month when they say they're gonna get you, give you your money. Um, you may play in a gym that might be air conditioned every couple of days or <laughs> every Saturday, okay? Um, it's, it's really a vagabond life of uncertainty, but to succeed, you do have to be millingly tough. You have to be a little bit nuttier than squirrel poop is how I say it. 
um, and I'm extracting a verb <laughs> or a noun that I usually say. But you got to be really nutty to be over there. And, and Rob calls me a nuttier. He calls me nutty every day. And I'm like, yeah, Rob, I am nutty. But life is, if you embrace culture and if you embrace um, other cultures, you'll be fine. You have to, as what you said, the college cocoon. So before you get into college, you're in, you're, you're, you have your cocoon of your mother or your father or your uncle, you know, of your guardian. All right. You, you leave that cocoon to go into college. There's an uncomfortable transition for a year or two, but then you get comfortable. Um, some do, some don't. I managed to get comfortable after two years. Okay. I was good. And then after um, the college cocoon, either you go into the corporate world. I was fortunate and blessed to be able to go into the overseas professional basketball world. And I was okay with that. Before overseas, I tried out for the Celtics with Rick Pitino and, and Jim O'Brien uh, before embarking on professional career. And so I tried to do this NBA thing just for a little bit, you know, it was kind of like this undersized guy. It was between me and Paul Pierce, you know, in this summer camp. Um, he was like this six, seven skilled guy. Uh, of course, the history shown that. And I was like this six, seven guy that can only do a jump hook, you know, that can rebound. Uh, Paul Pierce was down there, you know, from Kansas. And he was like, you know, shooting threes. And this, I'm like, what is a three-point shot? Um, so, <laughs> but, um, but you have to be able to embrace uncertainty overseas because it's unlike America. It's unlike having everything available to you. It's unlike having English spoken. Um, it's unlike having um, maybe a gym to work out in every day. Or maybe you don't have the same weight room that you had in college or at your local gym. These are, those are just a small list of things that what life consisted of over there. But the good things, you get a car, you get an apartment by yourself, sometimes, because sometimes you have to share an apartment with another American. Um, you get paid every month. The only thing you have to do is practice, make sure your body is healthy, lift weights. Uh, you may practice twice a day. You may, um, you may, uh, uh, you may, uh, you're going to play, um, once a week, sometimes twice a week. If you're in a cup, if you're in like a Euro cup, Euro challenge or things like that. But, uh, I embraced it. I loved every minute of it. There were pitfalls, but I took the I took the positives over pitfalls. And if you can take positive over pitfalls, you can sustain and pers and persist over a long period of time. I had my injuries, but they weren't major injuries. The reason why is because you had to do a good job of implementing your own plan to um, lifting weights, making sure your body's strong, eating the right foods, um, limiting extracurricular activities which is readily available over there and that was the one thing that as far as far as being mentally tough have to be it's like a no question no brainer must be mentally tough to be able to stay over there for 10 months out of the year come back for two months um you know like in a july june july august setting and then be ready to go back over there and you might not go back to the country that you were a year before so it was like well 
okay, I was in France last year, but I got to go to China this year, but then I got to go to Australia next year, but then I got to go to Japan, and then I got to go to Greece, then Venezuela, and then Dominican Republic, Puerto, Puerto Rico. Those were things, oh, well, maybe these didn't work out, and I got to come back to the CBA, or I got to come back to the IBL, the International Basketball League, which was formed just for two years back from uh, in 2001, 2002. Um, and those were things that was available at the time, and you just keep the wheel spinning. You know, Einstein once said, and I, I took this one of his quotes, he's like, life is like riding a bicycle. You keep riding, you know, in order to keep riding, you never fall off. You know, his quotes went like that some, uh, some way, somehow. But, uh, but when I listened to that quote, I was like, yo, I'm gonna keep riding this bicycle as long as I can. <laughs> I don't want to let's, let's stay on this path a little bit. Um, all right, let's get real here. Everybody in college thinks they're going to the NBA. I don't care what level, level you're at. I've had interaction with D3 players. They all think they're going to the league, D1 players. You said you tried out for the Celtics. When you were playing at St. Francis, did you think that you had a realistic shot of going to the NBA? It was a goal of mine. I'll be realistic. And I'm, I'm just going to go off the cuff right here, Ron. Every, every guy has a goal, you know, whether it's NFL, MLB, NHL, my, since we're talking about basketball, it was NBA. I wanted to be the Dennis Rodman. I wanted to be the, uh, you know, the quasi Michael Jordan. I wanted to be Patrick Ewing. I wanted to be David Robinson. I wanted to be all those guys. Akeem Olajuwon. Those were the guys that I looked up to back when I was coming up. And it was a realistic goal that I had. And I knew I, I had to do exactly what got me to St. Francis and got me the success I had with basketball. And that was to rebound, defend, and, uh, and make a hook shot. And, but I understand that it is not statistic. When you look at the statistics of trying to get into the NBA, it's absolutely darn near impossible. But you have to have that drive and have to have that goal. You have to be persistent because if you don't set the goal, then, then what are you setting yourself up for? So in order to have the success, you have to have a goal. Like I said, you're not guaranteed to get there. And, uh, and I knew I wasn't guaranteed to get there, but I, I have, I tried every Avenue. I wrote letters. I have all the letters that I wrote to all the GMs of the, it's funny that we talked cause I wanted to get this. When I found out I was talking to you, I was like, yo, I want to get some stuff. Cause my mom keeps all this stuff. My mom and dad, they keep all this stuff. My dad was unbelievable. And, and, um, and telling me about how I had to be more aggressive. And then my mom kept, kept a lot of this, these, uh, so John Lucas, I wrote to John Lucas, I wrote to Tim Floyd. And just, just so you, just so you guys know where I'm coming from, I wrote to Rick Carlisle. He was with the uh, director of player personnel with the Detroit Pistons. I wrote to Larry Brown. I wrote to Doug Collins, who was with the uh, Washington Wizards. I wrote to Lon Kruger, who was director of player personnel with the Atlanta Hawks during the time that I was trying to get in. Byron Scott, who was with the New Jersey Nets. I wrote to Doc Rivers, who was with the Orlando Magic. These are all players. Coaches or players of personnel. Dan Issel, he's with the Nuggets. Don Nelson, I wrote to Alvin Gentry. My mom actually created these letters. Rudy Tomjanovich, I wrote to Jeff Van Gundy. I wrote to Greg Popovich. I wrote to Scott Skiles, who was, the, uh, he was either coaching or director of player personnel with the Phoenix Suns. I wrote to Maurice Cheeks. I wrote to George Carl. Dave Cowens. Oh yeah. So if you want to know how hard it is to get the NBA, yeah, I wrote all these letters thinking that I was that good, thinking that these letters were going to get to these guys and they were just going to let me try out. No. Mm -mm. 
Mm -mm. You have to be special. You have to be blessed. You have to be unbelievably talented. The goal of making the NBA is great. And I'm not here to pee on people's cornflakes. No, but you have to be unbelievably gifted. Um, and I think we got guys that were, that were gifted, you know, in our program. And I'm sure there are guys that are, that were as gifted, you know, in other programs. But when you think about 350 some odd, uh, just division one, you're not talking about D2 and D3 and JUCO because those guys want to get in there too. Um, it's unbelievably hard to get in there, but that goal that that one individual has, if you do get there, it will be realized and it will be uh, of that accomplishment. It makes it even better. It makes it even greater. So my thing was, if I don't get to the NBA, I'm going overseas. There was no question. I'm going, I'm out. There's no way I'm not going to sit up here in the, even though I used the IBL, and I'll be real with you, this is, this is what I did. I used the IBL and the CBA as a bridge to try to get back into the NBA or get back overseas so I can get my name out there. So, I mean, I, I had really good stats in the IBL, averaged like, like 18 and 12. And then in the, uh, in the CBA, averaged like 16 and, 16 and 11 in the CBA. I uh, played under Paul Woopert at the South Dakota – uh, South Dakota, uh, Sioux Falls Sky Force, the Sioux Falls Sky Force, played for them, played with the IBO, with Cincinnati stuff, uh, with Joby Wright, played under Joby Wright, and uh, Greg Herenda. Greg Herenda was with the Cincinnati stuff, wow. and Scott Spinelli. Uh, so, played with, for those guys, and I was just trying to get a bridge. I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to play around with trying to get there, because a lot of guys do that. Did, not disrespecting those guys, this is what I wanted to do. I'm not going to sit around one, two, three, four, five years trying to get back to the NBA. I, there's a, there's a, there's so much more to go to Europe, and uh, I want to get to Europe. I want to learn about different cultures. That was my thing. I want to learn about different cultures, and I want to travel the world. I'm not going to be able to. I'm not going to sit here and have these hoop dreams um, when when there's unbelievable opportunities and there's teams over there that would want a player. Uh, like me or like these other players that are really, really good, scratching the surface of the NBA. Um, but there's teams over there that would love you to come play for them, pay you X amount of dollars uh, to learn about you, play good basketball, um, and maybe be on a team for a year or two. Because some teams will sign you for three, four years. Some, team will, some teams will sign you for two years and have you instant automatic income for you know, uh, 24 months straight where they're paying you like a teacher, to be honest with you. I mean, that's as real as it gets um, when going overseas. So NBA was great. When I found out, I, I, was, I had to be quick about it. I found out I wasn't getting there. I'm overseas. I'm out. I'll come back if things don't work out overseas. But, and you'll find out there's, there's a lot of players over in the, uh, overseas that scratch the turf of the NBA. Ed O'Bannon was one of them. I played with Ed when I was in, uh, when I was in Poland. He was the first, he was the only American other, we were two Americans there, Ed O'Bannon, and he talked about actually his litigation against the NCAA back in 2003. He told me about it and uh, got some pictures of me and Ed. Great guy, great family, lives in uh, uh, Nevada, which is unbelievable family, really good guy. So yeah, but, um, but it, there's wonderful opportunities. And so I don't want to um, be somewhat, I don't want to sound pessimistic about the NBA or anything like that, but there's so many players out there. You know, when you think of, when you take, you know, just your, just your fraction of the players that are available every year, 
it's just, it's difficult. It's challenging. If you get there, great. God bless you. But uh, for the guys that scratch the surface um, and that, you know, may not put all their eggs in the NBA basket, there is, there are unbelievable opportunities overseas and there's a, a experience there other than basketball. There's a more of an experience of uh, embracing culture, world culture that would uh, enhance your life for your entire life because basketball stops bouncing for people, you know, whether it's before they get to college, in college, after college, um, it bounces, that, that timeline runs out for everybody at some point in time. It just does. You better have your degree um, and you better have another plan other than basketball in order to uh, uh, make your life better for yourself, for your family. Um, and that's one of the, that's the most important thing. And be a per better person and a human being you know, for the world, just because you won't be able to play forever. Let me, I want to wrap this topic with, with one more question. I think it's important. So hear me out here. So if 99.9% .9 of college basketball players aren't going to make the NBA, a pro career is realistic. It's a realistic goal for many. Even in the NEC, we have probably between 50 and 100 players at any given time playing professionally. My question for you is, does it matter the level that you play to get a shot? And I ask this because I think it sometimes plays into the transfer culture we have now that I need to move up to get noticed. I mean, do you have as good a chance of making it in Europe if you're a star in the NEC as compared to, I don't know, like an eighth man in the Big East? Doesn't matter. I, I'll, I will shoot that myth down. You, if you're good, they're going to find you. If you're good enough, you will be found. Um, that's, you can take that to the bank. I'll bet the ranch on it. Um, if you have success, whichever level you are in now, I, I can't say the same for, you know, JUCOs and NAIAs and D3s and D2s, but even at that level, I mean, there's a lot of guys in the NBA from D2s and D3s, or they didn't even go to D2, D3. They just, they just went straight out of high school. So, I mean, there doesn't matter how, where you came from, because I played against guys that were from North Carolina. I just told you my teammate was in Warsaw, Poland, was Ed O'Bannon from UCLA, who came off of a national championship, you know, Power Five, national championship, NEC, playing with UCLA. It doesn't matter who you are. You know, Shaman Williams from North Carolina went on tours with him. Um, uh, countless North Carolina guys. Penn State guy, Crispin, Joe Crispin, played in Poland against him. Um, you know, I can go down the list of guys like Virginia, Elton Brand played at Virginia, Syracuse, uh, Otis Smith played with Otis in, in, in Poland. Uh, Yao Ming played against Yao Ming before he got drafted uh, in, NBA, in the NBA for the Houston Rockets. I was over in China right after September 11th happened, played against this tall dude, didn't even know his name, but he blocked my shot a few times. And so I had to find out I had to shoot threes and shoot baseline jumpers. I couldn't shoot a jump hook over this dude. I'm like, who is this dude? Oh, that's Yao Ming. Oh, Yao Ming. But um, that, it doesn't matter where you come from. It just matters about your determination. Determination. That's what these teams look for. They look for work ethic. They look for NEC guys. They want guys that, that, that were in the grind. And the NEC is in the grind. The Power Fives are great because they know that they're going to get a, a, a blue star player in a Power Five. But the mentality of an NEC person or 
of the conference uh, quasi or homogeneous of the NEC, you're going to get a grimy type gritty player. And those are the players that, that, that persist overseas. Um, you're not guaranteed to play 12, 13. You're not guaranteed to play one or two. But what you do at the NEC level will guarantee you either a look, whether it's Portsmouth, like Keith Braxton did, uh, whether it's a camp, you know, they do Korea, they do camps from, for Korea. You may get, uh, there's a lot of teams that bring uh, teams from Israel, because I played in Givat Shmuel for a, for a half year. So I had connect, there was connection. The basketball is so connected. It's so connected, it's so small. If you're good, they find you. It doesn't matter where you are. The transfer thing, it, it, it just, it does provide a cloud over players because they think the grass is greener on the other side. That was an old saying back in the day, the grass is not greener. If you have adversity, stay. Under extreme cases, maybe you have to do a transfer, maybe. And that's due to a family issue, or maybe the coach left. Or even in that case, stay. Uh, but other than that, you know, there are extreme cases where, you know, maybe a coach, there was a mental abuse, and, you know, quasi-physical abuse by a coach, which, which, of course, doesn't happen anymore. It's very limited now. But uh, in that case, transfer. But other than that, just because you don't play, no, nah, get better. Get to the gym. Go lift some more weights. There's more weights in there for you to lift. And that's what, uh, that was the one thing that I, that was my motto. That was my MO. If, if I ain't good enough, I'm going to get better. I'm going to get to the gym more. I'm going to lift more weights. I'm going to be stronger than you. That was my MO. So if you don't have to be power five to get to the NBA. And you don't have to be power five to get to the, uh, to get overseas. You just have to be good. You just have to be good. And you have to be, you have to be perfect at your craft and you have to be able to um, adapt and to enhance your game as you get older, um, just like Jordan did. As he got older, he had to turn, he had to uh, make sure he had a fadeaway jumper because he, he couldn't slash and get into the lane with the, with the Pistons. He couldn't do it. You know, LeBron had to enhance his three-point shooting. Kobe, I mean, his game was, I mean, like the list goes on with things that you have to do to uh, excel at the level you are at, whether you're at this level, that level, or that level. You just have to be good, no matter where you are. Good. Love it. Um, following your playing, let's get a post-playing career. Before you come back to SFU, you're working in Germany um, with Activate Sports International. How did you get involved in that aspect of the business? It was something that came natural to me because uh, being a coach slash player my last year in Poland in Tarnobchik, in Sharka Tarnobchik out in the Carpathian Mountains and near the Ukraine, um, it started to dawn on me that like, you know, I have a relationship with players. I can speak multiple languages. Maybe being a player agent could be in my future. So I was hearing player agent and I was hearing coach at the same time. So my coach over in Poland, he was like, ah, Eric, you can be a coach. You know, you can do coaching. You can do coaching. I was like, ah, well, maybe I can do that. Maybe making me an agent. Cause I saw the money that agents were making. I was like, oh, maybe I can get into this world and do that. So I tried that. It was tough because it was like, you have to have your own capital. You have to have instant relationships. 
it needs time, it has to develop, you need a year or two, unless you just get real lucky and you get this guy who's like a multi, you know, million, million dollar contract guy and, you know, and you get, a, you know, two to 4% of that or 10%, whatever. And so that didn't get off the ground like I wanted to. And so um, I put my name in the coaching. Like I told, I actually called Rob, I said, Rob, I'm gonna put my resume into coaching. I wanna start coaching. I think I can have an impact. Um, I'm gonna, I actually looked at the NCAA. I actually looked at the Air Force. I wanted to go into the Air Force before I uh, came back to coach. I was doing a lot of things, activate Sports International. And I was like, oh, maybe I wanna go to the Air Force because I always wanted to fly planes. Um, but I actually didn't have a GPA of 3.5. That's what they told me. So like on my, on my resume, uh, they looked at my high school or they looked at my college transcript. They're like, oh, Eric, you want a 3.5. I'm like, no, I wasn't 3.5. It was a 3.9. I was a 3.9, not a 3.5. So anyways, no, they wouldn't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't take me in the Air Force. And so, uh, so yeah, when uh, I wanted to coach, you know, the, the, the sports agent thing, it needed time to get off the ground. So I, I dissolved that. And, uh, but I'm still kind of like a mentor to our guys now and, and giving them guidance and, and uh, mentorship when they are making decisions to go overseas and how to navigate through the agency business. Cause I dealt with a lot of agents, a lot of fake news agents, you know, you deal with those, you deal with a lot of guys who are trying to just get uh, commission off of you. And, um, and so that's difficult to navigate through also. But, uh, but I ended up being with, I, I actually stayed with a really good agent of mine, Brian Elfis, really good guy who stayed with me uh, through the thick and thin. And that's the kind of agent that you want, you know, talking about not to get on a tangent about agents and who to choose, but get a guy that's going to be with you thicker thin. that's going to go to battle with you. And that's the reason why I stayed with Brian Elfis for every bit of 10 years. I'm actually still with Brian now, but uh, I've been with Brian as a player um, for about 10 years. And he helped me through a lot of jobs, a lot of jobs. Thanks for listening to part one of our NEC Now podcast with St. Francis University men's basketball assistant coach, Eric Taylor. Be on the lookout for part two on the NEC Overtime pod coming soon.